to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. Today, I'm very honored to have food writer Victoria Slynn-Floor on with me today. Victoria, thank you for being on the podcast. Cool. Well, um, Victoria, for the people that don't know you or not familiar with your work, can you give us a little bit of bio about yourself? Well, I'm a journalist and have been a journalist for more than 40 years. Um, I started out as a wine writer for a newspaper in Bellevue, Washington. And through the strength of that gig, somehow parlayed my way into a position as a food writer and actually the food editor and restaurant critic for one of the New Orleans area newspapers. Um, I did that for a number of years. And then when I left New Orleans, I made a leap into legal journalism where I spent most of my career and ultimately became a specialist in intellectual property law. So how you get from being a wine writer to be someone who ends up writing about patents and trademarks and copyrights is a peculiar path, but it's how I got there. Now, um, how did you get the job as a food editor of the newspaper in New Orleans? That just sounds like a wonderful story. <laughs> well, I think you have to go back to when I was in high school. I went to an all-girls convent school in Seattle, and because I was a musician, I was somewhat privileged and didn't have to take some of the boring classes like home economics and physical education because I was in the orchestra and in the string quartet and having violin lessons. Uh, right before the beginning of my senior year in high school, my dad got transferred to Florida. Um, he was a Boeing engineer and he was working in the space program. And suddenly I was pulled out of my nice all girls school and had to go to a giant public school, which did not be in the least bit impressed with the fact that I was a violinist and said, you're not getting out of this school until you take home economics and PE. So my senior year, I had to take home ec and I was utterly mortified because that was not what I wanted to do. I was an intellectual who was, you know, wanted to take physics and uh, calculus and um, English literature, but there I was in home ec. Well, um, all the seniors who were in home ec had to take some sort of um, multiple choice test, a standardized test that I later learned was for the Betty Crocker Homemaker of Tomorrow Award. And um, I won this award. Now, just about every girl who's a senior in high school, apparently in my era was eligible for this award. And I remembered back at my all girls school that somebody inevitably won this award and was usually really mortified about it because I mean, it was home economics. But at this school, it was a really big deal. And in fact, they had a special assembly at which I was given this award. And the home economics teacher was utterly appalled that I didn't think to invite my mother to come to this award ceremony, but it was like, oh, please, <laughs> do I really have to do this? Do I have to get this damn medal? Oh, dear God. But um, ultimately, I did learn some stuff in home ec. Um, and I guess it just kind of stuck with me. Then um, years later, I was on my way home to Washington State from California and I had stopped at the Robert Mondavi Winery for one of their tours. And uh, in the process, discovered that I was really good at wine. Uh, it was not something that I expected to do. I do not come from a wine drinking culture. I'm Norwegian for God's sakes but I was very, very good at it. I could perceive all kinds of subtle distinctions in the wine. So I ended up teaching a wine appreciation class in the Pacific Northwest 
ultimately for sommeliers or would-be sommeliers. And we decided to have a fundraising auction. And I was given a Jeroboam of a pre-Phylloxera Lafitte, which basically means a very old French wine from a distinguished uh, first growth vineyard that had been made before the phylloxera epidemic wiped out most of the vineyards of France. So I took this big bottle of wine and was trotted around to all the newspapers and the TV stations promoting the auction. And one of the newspapers said, hey, you know, we're looking for a wine writer. Would you like to write a wine column for us? And I thought, well, okay. Um, so I started writing the wine column and gradually ended up doing a few other things like ballet criticism and um, some feature stuff, lots of stuff about Asian culture because I was very interested in Japan. So when I ended up in New Orleans, I needed a job. And I first of all looked around for a bunch of different PR jobs and it realized very soon that that was not going to work for me at all because I didn't know the lay of the land in Louisiana. But there was a newspaper, as we say, Croxta River, which is over across the river from New Orleans, that was owned by uh, one of the big publishing companies in the South, uh, Cox, which publishes the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. And they were starting up a string of community newspapers that were going to ring New Orleans and compete head on with the established Times Picayune. So they were looking for any warm body that could sit at a computer and type a sentence in English. And um, I walked in and sort of um, bullshitted my way to a job, frankly. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing and they didn't know I didn't know what I was doing. And so there I was. Um, in fact, after several weeks on the job, the publisher called me down to his office and wanted to know how he was doing. And he said to me, um, by the way, how are you doing your makeup? And I thought, makeup? Oh my God, what's he talking about? I mean, <laughs> is it like eyeshadow on before mascara, eyeliner? I don't know what he's talking about. I, this has gotta be some technical term. Oh dear God, what is it? So finally I looked him straight in the eye and I said, well, according to industry standards, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Great then, answer, by the way. <laughs> I ran upstairs to my paste-up girl, who was the person who pasted the newspaper up, up for me uh, on the boards. And I said, Vicki, Vicki, what is makeup? And she said, oh, makeup. That's how you tell me how to do my job. And I said, but I don't know how to tell you how to do your job. And she said, no, I know you don't, but I'm going to teach you how to tell me how to do my job. And that's makeup. So that's what happened. And because I'm naturally curious, um, I just started to learn a lot about Louisiana. One day I was in a bookstore and I looked up at a, a whole big bookshelf and at the top it said our cultural heritage. And I thought, well, since I better learn what's going on around here, I better go check out our cultural heritage. And I discovered that the entire bookcase was full of nothing but cookbooks. Oh, wow. And then I realized what Louisiana is really all about is food. The Louisiana culture is so strongly defined by two things, food and music. And it was just really kind of handed to me. Um, the chefs were all very available. The um, home cooks were loved to have me come to their houses and write stories about them. Um, one of the first food stories I ever did was about a guy who won 
the Bass Masters Fishing Competition. And he was going to show me how to cook bass. So I, there I am in this kitchen. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know him. He had a big cast iron pot that he had on his stove that was full of oil, probably about four or five inches deep. And um, he set several wooden matches on the top of the oil as the oil was heating up. He said, now, Chef, how do we do that? As soon as the match goes off, then it's time to put in the fish. Oh my God. And I thought, well, you know, there are cooking thermometers and there are cooking thermometers. <laughs> but he put the fish in, he cooked the fish, and ultimately he ended up making an absolutely fabulous redfish cubillon, only he used bass. It was exquisite. And I went home and I looked it up in my cookbook and I thought, my God, this guy's a gourmet chef and he doesn't even know it. And I think that was very characteristic of so many of the people in Louisiana. The everyday food that they made was actually gourmet food with many steps, you know, and complex ingredients that I'd never heard of before in my life. Things like filet, which is powdered sassafras leaves or okra. I mean, who knew of okra in the Pacific Northwest where I was growing up? Um, and the incredible varieties of fish that you just would never see anywhere else. Plus, Louisiana does grow some really wonderful fresh ingredients, most of the time with the word Creole in front of them. I have honestly never in my life had tomatoes as wonderful as the Creole tomatoes that are grown in Louisiana soil. And uh, Creole cream cheese is probably responsible for about 10 of the extra pounds that I carry around on my rear end. Um, Ponchatoula strawberries that are grown over across the lake from New Orleans, they're skinny and long and they come into season right at the beginning of February and they are the sweetest berries I've ever eaten in my life. The Creole satsumas that are grown down in lower uh, Plaquemines Parish over on the West Bank you know, you look at them cross-eyed and the peels just fall off and it's just essence of sweetness. Ah. Those are things that most people who are outside of Louisiana don't know. But the thing that makes so much of Louisiana's food so wonderful is the ingredients are so fabulous. And then there was shrimp right off the trawler. Ah. My friend Michael and I used to go to the, go over to West Wego and buy shrimp off the trawler for 49 cents a pound. And these would be the big guys, you know, about 15 to the pound. We come home with 10 pounds of shrimp and or 20 pounds of shrimp and call everybody up and have a party because we could do it. And it was so good and so delicious. So um, I just lucked out. I was in the right place at the right time with newspaper management that didn't know its rear end from, an, from its elbow. So they basically let us inmates run the asylum and we ran the asylum. And in the process, many of us learned to be very good journalists. And plus we learned about this wonderful place where we were living and working. That sounds so it amazing. it was win-win on all fronts. That sounds just incredible. Now, New Orleans is known for some wonderful world famous restaurants. Can you tell us about some of the places you've been able to eat in New Orleans and some restaurants you've been able to visit there and get to know over time? Oh, sure, 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 sure. Probably the greatest restaurant, which is no more, unfortunately, was La Ruth's. La Ruth was, as we say, Croxta River over on the West Bank. 
uh, owned by the great late Warren LaRuth, who was a Louisiana native and a food chemist by training. Um, and among other things, uh, Warren is responsible for the recipe for red beans and rice that you can get at Popeye's. And Popeye's red beans and rice is damn good. Oh, yeah. Actually, something that I really, really like. Uh, but uh, Warren, Warren used wonderful ingredients. And because he had a food chemist's background, he was doing it by more than the seat of his pants. Um, I remember one time I was there with one of my kids and he was experimenting with white truffles. Um, so he was making white truffle ice cream and it was coming out of the freezer and pouring out into a big bowl. And my 10 year old daughter was looking at this miracle happening and he said, oh, Martha here. And he handed her a spoon and said, you can eat as much as you want, just eat it as it comes out of the machine. And I thought, wow, this kid is never gonna be contented with a soft serve. <laughs> you know, from, from Dairy Queen again after this. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no. Um, but that was really my favorite restaurant. Um, he Warren was somewhat irascible, and he had two sons who were chefs who were coming along just magnificently. And Warren wanted to do anything he could for the boys. He even went out and bought a whole new set of china because he wanted to give the boys a chance to get um, a Michelin star for the restaurant. Um, so that was probably my favorite place to go. And sometimes when I went, there would be the dessert parade. I'd be sitting there and eating this wonderful dish. And suddenly I'd look up and there'd be 10 waiters coming in, each one with a different dessert. Oh my God. Since I am Norwegian and have a terminal sweet tooth, I was in heaven. Um, incidentally, Warren had his own uh, vanilla that he made with bourbon. And I still have a little bit of it left. And boy, oh do I ration that out. That was absolutely fabulous. So he was probably my favorite of all the chefs that I got to know. And his restaurant was one of my favorites. Um, I also loved Commander's Palace, which Ooh. is owned by the Brennan family. And the Brennan family actually has several restaurants now, but Commander's is really the flagship. It's not in the French Quarter. It's slightly uptown in a big old bright blue building across the street from a cemetery. And um, Commander's was a place where uh, Paul Prudhomme had cooked at one point. Hmm. Um, and, and subsequent chefs have kind of followed in Paul's footsteps in that they've pushed the limits somewhat of traditional cuisine. But it's the traditional stuff that is so good. Um, they're, um, one of, one of my favorites is their, um, it's like a bread pudding souffle and you have to order it when you go in because it takes the whole time you're eating to, um, to prepare. But they do the seafood dishes just beautifully. Um, I guess the other favorite restaurant would be Galatoire's. And Galatoire's is a place that you go if you really want to experience not only the food, but the real Louisiana kind of uptown culture. Um, you kind of have to know your own waiter. Um, you have the same waiter who will take care of you forever. Uh, I have one friend who's a, a physician there who probably has been eating at Galapagos every Friday for 45 years. And um, Galatoire's seafood dishes are 
legendary. I, I would die right now for some of the, uh, the trout almondine, for example, mm. or maybe, no, it's the trout almondine that, that I, I would just die for. Um, when I left my newspaper in New Orleans, my editor who knew I loved that place took the whole um, staff to lunch at Galatoire's. And we sat there for hours and hours and nobody bothered us. And we ate one thing after another and drank more than a little bit. And finally he looked at his watch and it was getting to be five o'clock. And he said, oh hell, let's just stay for dinner. <laughs> I love that. Which we did. Nice. So um, I have a, Galatoire has a really fond spot in my heart as well. Um, Arnaud's, which is across the street from the um, Royal Sinesta Hotel is another favorite place. Um, you know, it's funny. Restaurants have come and gone, and there have always been these innovations on the basic Creole cuisine. But New Orleans people like their food the way they always liked their food. And Arnaud's knows that. And people go to Arnaud's because they know that they're going to be able to get the same food that their grandparents got. Um, with the same wonderful fresh ingredients served with the same flair by waiters for whom being a waiter is a profession, not a way station on the way to getting a job as an actor in a reality show. Yeah. <laughs> so now, I, I would say that those are probably my very most favorite places. That's That sounds amazing. Now, I imagine living there, you got to really learn a lot about Creole and Cajun cooking. Do you think that like we as Americans who live elsewhere, we understand the food or is what do you think would ex would be like an idea of what the food exemplifies or what makes up Cajun and Creole cooking and what the differences are? Well, in the first place, I think that people are very confused and yeah. they think that Cajun cooking is Louisiana cooking yeah. and uh, it's not necessarily at all. Uh, Cajun cooking is the cooking of Le McDo so to speak. Uh, it's the cooking of the country. Um, uh, you and I have a mutual friend uh, who has some French Canadian background that's from the same region from which most of the people in Acadiana have come. And the thing that our friend has always said is, hey, we'll eat anything what doesn't eat us first. <laughs> and that's kind of the, uh, the Cajun approach, I think. Um, Often the Cajun food is spicier and um, it tends to be sometimes wetter. The, the um, rice is wetter. They use the short grain rice. It tends to be a little bit stickier. And you'll find um, all kinds of um, critters, I guess, in the gumbo pot out there, in the, out the country, as they say, that you may not necessarily find in New Orleans. Um, it's robust country people food for the most part. On the other hand, the Creole cuisine is, is quite refined. Um, and incidentally, the word Creole doesn't mean what most people think it means. Creole comes from the Spanish from Criollo, which means son of the colonies. And it is the food that came over largely from Spain, actually, rather than from France. Um, and it's acidified cuisine, certainly uses a lot of the basic high quality ingredients, uh, more butter, more cream than you'd find out in the country in the Cajun food. Um, 
chicken, lots of chicken done very, very well. Um, sophistication with the spicing. Um, on the other hand, Creole red beans and rice, just about one of the best things I can ever think of eating. In fact, um, my Bible for cooking Creole style is uh, La Bouche Creole, which was by uh, Leon, the late Leon Soniat. And the, the cookbooks, which are still available in print, there's La Bouche Creole 1 and La Bouche Creole 2, which means the Creole mouth, um, lay out the cooking steps together with wonderful stories about Creole life in New Orleans in the early 20th century. Uh, his stories that go with the food remind me a lot of Kate Chopin's novels that are also about Creole people in Louisiana. So um, it's just, it, it's refinement. You might have pompano and papio that's a Creole dish, which you'd never find out in the country. They throw the fish in the gumbo pot. But here it's, you know, cooked in parchment paper and very elegant, elegantly preserved are presented. So I guess that would be the big difference. And um, I think a lot of people used to think blackened anything was Louisiana food. Yeah. And, mm, whatever, you know. <laughs> um, you can blame the late Paul Prudhomme for some of that, but <laughs> you know, my memory of Paul is being in his kitchen and having him cook me cook for me oysters in cream sauce on pasta while I'm sitting there on a stool next to him by the stove and oh, thinking wow. that's not blackened anything. <laughs> and it was 75 billion calories. Um, and it was one of the best things I ever had in my life, but it was often, it was done with a very subtle hand with the spicing rather than dumping in a whole bunch of really, you know, uh, peppery spices. Um, but that said, Louisiana people do like their food spicier. Um, the first time I was in Louisiana, the first time I ever had Popeye's fried chicken, I just about couldn't eat it because it was too spicy for me. And that was the mild version. And oh. now, <laughs> you know, I always order this, the spicy Popeye's. Incidentally, I love Popeye's. It's fast food. It's probably junk food. And you know what? It's what everybody eats on Mardi Gras day. Um, yeah, it's good. It's like one of the best fast food places. If you're going to go and do it, you might as well go to the best, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I actually get kind of homesick in my tummy sometimes for Popeye's. So I just have to go, as we say in Louisiana, get me some Popeye's. No, I totally agree. We do that too. We have one near our house and so we're very lucky. Um, so when you think like, I know the tourists, when they go to New Orleans, they often do the beignets and chicory coffee. And they do like the po' boys and stuff like that. Is there any other things you recommend to a tourist when they're visiting New Orleans? Um, I would go to the small cafes um, outside of the French Quarter and get yourself a po' boy. And um, the po' boys, there, there's a bakery in New Orleans that makes the bread that's used in the po' boys. And the New Orleans French bread, the the long baguettes have an eggshell crust that is incredibly crisp. The bakers um, actually, when they get up at two o'clock in the morning to start baking, the first thing that they do is call the weather bureau to find out exactly what the humidity is because that governs how they're going to bake the bread. But any of those places will take a fabulous baguette and cut it open and fill it with 
wonderful things like, um, of course, fried oysters, fried shrimp, um, roast beef, um, any, any combination, but the best, the best are soft shell crab pool boys. Mm, yeah. And if you want to sound, be really cool and sound like a native, you tell them, I want it dressed. Because dressed means you get shredded lettuce and tomatoes on top of it. And then if you really want to sound like a native, you say, I want it dressed with, and heavy on the minus, which is, of course, mayonnaise. <laughs> blue, plate, blue plate mayonnaise, I swear you could use it, which is made in New Orleans. You could put bricks together with it and build a chimney. It is the <laughs> heaviest, most dense mayonnaise I ever had in my life. And I actually did a story about the blue plate mayonnaise company and walked through the place and nearly broke my neck because the floors are so slippery despite the fact that they're mopping them constantly just because there's all that oil that goes into the mayonnaise. But um, a soft shell crab poor boy dressed heavy on the mayonnaise and you, you, you're in heaven. Mm. You're absolutely in heaven. It's one of the best things I've ever had in my life. And some of the best places to get them are like down by the docks where the fishermen come in um, Best one I ever had in my life was on East Bank Plaquemines Parish down by a little place called Violet. Oh, dear God, what I would give for one of those right now. Oh, Back when great. we were putting out the newspaper, I can't believe we used to do this, but we would go out and get a poor boy for lunch and two beers and then come back and put the newspaper up. I couldn't do that today if I, <laughs> I but that's, that's how we survived back then living on poor boys and Popeye's fried chicken. Now I've always liked the uh, muffaletta and I've, I've never had a one um, from New Orleans, of course, but I've always dreamed of going there and having one. Did you eat any of those when you were there? Oh yeah, I've had muffalatas and um, they're good, but it's not something that I miss. I think uh, one of the reasons is it has a lot of uh, really fatty different Italian meats in it, you know, yeah. like mortadella and the olive salad that's on it is good. Um, the bun is really nice with the sesame seeds on the top, but for me, honestly, it's almost much. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, they're, they're good and you have, you kind of have to try one. Um, beignets on the other hand, fabulous, but there's a danger about beignets. Don't go out and get beignets. If you're with a lot of friends and you want to be talking to them, <laughs> because every time I do that, I'll hold a beignet up to my mouth and I'll take a breath and inhale, you know, half a cup of powdered sugar, <laughs> and then spend the rest of the morning coughing, trying to get all that powdered sugar back out. So if you're by yourself, you're okay. But if you're having a conversation, beignets can be dangerous. And now you know how I know that. Um, chicory coffee is wonderful, and I really miss it. Um, however, I do want to warn people that it can sometimes have a laxative effect if you drink a whole bunch of it. If yes. you're a regular coffee drinker and you're used to drinking, you know, 10 cups of coffee a day, be warned. If on the other hand, you're a moderate coffee drinker and you drink one or two or three cups a day, it won't have any effect. But I had a friend visit me who had, was in recovery. And so, of course, he was a big coffee drinker. <laughs> and finally, he said to me, uh, Victoria, is there something in the water here? <laughs> and I said, how much coffee have you been drinking? He said, oh, that chicory coffee. I think I've probably been drinking 10 cups a day. And I said, well. <laughs> well, there you go. What is some of the best um, experiences you've had as a food writer? I know that you probably have, you know, hundreds, but what are some of the most memorable experiences you've had 
uh, as a, you know, as a food writer working with people in that field? Well, I think, first of all, it has been the generosity of people, um, people opening their kitchens and their hearts to me was something that was really, really special. Uh, June Soniot, who is the widow of Leon Soniot, the author of uh, La Bouche Creole, invited me into her kitchen. And she had been widowed, I think, not too long before that. And I was a newcomer to Louisiana. And suddenly I was in this kitchen that was full of good smells and food that was new to me and prepared kindly with a loving hand and shared. Oh, I know another memory that's really special. Um, do you know about St. Joseph's altars? No, no, I don't think so. Well, it's a Sicilian tradition uh, that on the Feast of St. Joseph, which is the 19th of March, um, people set up these altars in their homes to honor St. Joseph. And um, often what they'll do is they'll have, they'll like clear out the living room and fill it with a big dining room table and push the table up against the wall and set the table with statues of, of saints and all kinds of religious artifacts. And then the rest of the table is covered with food. And it's really special food that's only available at this time of year. A lot of it has artichokes in it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is, veg well, it's, it is vegetarian because it's during Lent. And of course, Lent is a time when Catholics abstain and fast and abstain from meat for the most part, or at least for much of the time. And um, people will give a St. Joseph's altar in gratitude for something. For example, if a family member has been ill and has recovered because of, the, they, because of their prayers, they will put a little notice in the paper, we will be offering a St. Joseph's altar on such and such a day. And the house is open to all comers. So people will come to the house and they will admire the altar that will have all these religious artifacts and they'll partake of the food. A lot of, also a lot of different kinds of fig cookies are available. And the food is just beautifully laid out. Um, and then sometimes children will come to the door dressed as St. Joseph and the Virgin Mary. And there's a little tableau about, we can't, we can't let them in. They have to knock three times. It's like, you know, going to the inn. Um, and I was at one house out, in Metairie, which is one of the suburbs of New Orleans. And these people were giving a St. Joseph's altar and the little children dressed as Mary and Joseph came to the door and knocked on the door. And the hostess was supposed to deny them entry three times, but it was the grandmother. And she opened up the door and she couldn't say no to her grandchildren. So the grandchildren came in, everyone went, oh, and then everyone feasted. Um, oh, and there's also usually a big pot of spaghetti, uh, again, vegetarian spaghetti, or as we say in New Orleans, noodles with red gravy on it. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's one of my really special, special, wonderful memories, I suppose. Another time that was really weird is that there was some sort of a fundraiser for a wildlife fund. And for some reason at this fundraiser, we ate exotic animals. Um, and I, I, I think that they were animals that had been put down or maybe had been harvested illegally. And I, I don't remember any of, this, any of the story, except that the thing I remember 
was the consomme, lion consomme. Ew. And it tasted <laughs> like cat pee. Ew. <laughs> yeah. It was without a doubt the worst food experience I ever had in my life. Oh my God. Um, and, and well, it just, it was just perfectly dreadful. That's the only way I could ever put it. Um, but otherwise, um, most of my moments with food were pretty wonderful. I got to take a helicopter and go offshore a couple of times to the drilling platforms because I did stories about what they fed the guys out on the drilling platforms. And let me tell you, those guys ate very, very, very well. But they would have to, I mean, people demand good food in New Orleans. People demand fresh food. People demand that everybody knows how to cook and our cultural heritage, you know, 10 shelves of cookbooks. Now, I wanted to ask you, um, I know a lot of people know of New Orleans from Mardi Gras. Um, do, you, do you think that like outsiders have a lot of misunderstanding about what Mardi Gras is and what it means to the people that live there? Or because I think a lot of people just see it as a time to like party and like let loose. But is it, are there different cultural connotations for the people that are from New Orleans? Well, far be it for me to presume to speak for the people of New Orleans yeah, because yeah, I'm true. one of yeah. those outsiders myself. I mean, yeah. I'm, a, you know, what do Norwegians know from Mardi Gras? <laughs> um, but it, it, people talk about the Mardi Gras mentality. And I know people who may have had an income back when I was there of say $15,000 a year yeah. who would spend $1,000 of that income on their dues for their carnival crew and on the throws that they would throw from the throw from from the floats and think nothing of it because it was so deeply ingrained as part of the culture. Um, it's just what people do. And I think people don't like the fact that a bunch of tourists come and think it's an, an occasion for drunken revelry yeah. um, and nothing else. But it's it's, it's just what Louisiana kind of is all about. There's an upside and a downside. The downside is that if you're living in the moment, you often don't think about tomorrow or plan for tomorrow. And if you're spending $1,000 out of $15,000 on crew dues and costumes and you know plastic beads that you can throw from a float, you're probably not spending money on things that people in other parts of the country might think we're absolutely essential. But hey, it's your culture. It's how you choose to live. And I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, and masking for Mardi Gras is, is really fun. Um, one year I got invited to uh, ride one of the floats with one of the crews and hey, I, I didn't have very much money and I went and spent it all on, on, on beads and boy, did I have a good time flinging them from the floats. So um, I, I think it's just, it's, it's what Louisiana is. I've often said that Louisiana is not really part of the United States. It's the northernmost outpost of Caribbean culture. And for a while when I lived in Louisiana, I had a boyfriend who lived up in Kentucky. And I used to talk about how I would have to go up north to the south. <laughs> because I didn't live in the South. I lived in Louisiana, someplace else, some wonderful, mystical, magical place. And as you can tell, I'm, I miss it to this day. There's oh, yeah. something so special about, about the culture there. 
Um, and the food culture is one of the biggest parts of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what we hear about the most, I think, of all the things. I mean, there's so many things we hear about New Orleans, but the food has definitely traveled around the world and everybody knows about it. I mean, even if we don't always understand it, we at least hear about it, you know. This episode is sponsored by Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit their website at www.chnorcal.org. Um, I wanted to ask you, you've, since I've known you, you've worked for many different publications over the years, and you've worked as a, um, a writer who's, who's handled legal issues. Well, can you tell us about some of the publications you've worked for and some of the writing you've done? Oh, sure. Sure. Well, I started out working for the, uh, what was known as the Bellevue American in Bellevue, Washington, and that was um, the paper where I began as a wine writer uh, and a ballet critic. Um, then when I got to Louisiana, I started out working for a paper called the West Bank Guide because it was on the West Bank. And incidentally, um, West Bank is the best bank as we always say uh, in, in Louisiana. Um, the West Bank across the river from New Orleans is largely blue collar. Lots of people who work there work in the oil industry um, or even, um, shrimpers, trappers, trawlers. Um, it's really very blue collar. And I loved it because it was so unpretentious. Um, but the West Bank Guide was part of a chain of community newspapers that we were trying to establish. So we had uh, the Metairie Guide, we had the St. Tammany Guide, we had um, the East Orleans Guide, and then we had Jefferson Business, which became New Orleans Business. As, as the parent company was trying different mixes, we had different reincarnations. Then what happened was um, I got a call from the Greater New Orleans Tourist Commission uh, telling me that they were trying to respond to the AIDS epidemic because people were quitting coming to New Orleans as tourists because they were afraid that, they, frankly, they were afraid of gay waiters. They were afraid the gay waiters were gonna spit in their soup and give them aid. Oh my God. So I talked to a friend of mine who was the head of the New Orleans Department of Public Health. And he said, you know, I knew a guy who got fired from his job because he talked about being afraid of getting AIDS. Do you want to do a story about him? So I did a story about that guy and it ultimately blossomed into a four part package about AIDS in Louisiana that addressed many of the issues that later rose up. Things about like housing discrimination, job discrimination, uh, the refusal of healthcare workers to treat people with AIDS, the refusal of morticians to bury people with AIDS, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that package caught the attention of a newspaper in, New in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Daily Journal, which is the very fine daily legal newspaper down in the Southern part of, the, of California. So they hired me and I started writing a column on AIDS and the law. 
And um, I brought that with me when I came up to San Francisco to the Recorder, which was another legal newspaper um, that was serving Northern California. And from there, I was recruited by the National Law Journal, which was a national legal newspaper. And, you know, the, the 90s and the early 2000s were years of great change in newspaper publishing. So we were acquired and reacquired several times and ultimately became part of American Lawyer Media, um, which publishes the American Lawyer and lots of other papers. I was there for, oh golly, what, just about 15 years. And then after that, I wrote for Bloomberg, which is the, um, really the, the financial news service. Uh, I wrote for a British publication, what was it? Intellectual Asset Management. Uh, I wrote for the American Bar Association. And these days I'm writing for a quilting publication. So you just never know where you're gonna end up. It cracks me up that I graduated with a degree in medieval philosophy, went to graduate school to get a master's degree in English, started out as a wine writer and ballet critic, wrote about intellectual property law, and now I'm writing about quilts. I mean, talk about a career that's all over the map. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, do you have any uh, tips for anybody who wants to become a writer or wants to be a writer professionally? Oh, Lord, have mercy. Don't major in communications, whatever you do. <laughs> That's that's an absolute that's absolutely a career dead end. Um, if I were a young person who wanted to be a journalist, I would probably take a lot of classes in American history, political science, um, economics. I would take an accounting class because an awful lot of being a journalist is following the money, and I would write all the time. I would write on Facebook. I would write letters to my friends um, and any opportunity that would give me a chance to write, whether it was writing. I mean, for God's sakes, I wrote press releases for an organization way back when I was a young mother that promoted natural childbirth. You know, write, 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 and read, 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 read. And also use any possible connection to get your foot in the door. And, you know, wine writer to intellectual property specialist. I never would have thought that point A would get me to point B, but it did. And sometimes you end up having to do stuff that you don't really like. I mean, I had to dummy up the bride pages for God's sakes for a while. Oh. <laughs> and that was one of the worst parts of the I remember one time we had someone come in with a portrait that was of, you know, the cheek to cheek, the bride and the groom cheek to cheek, that was an engagement announcement photo. And um, the person who brought it in said, but that's not the guy she's marrying. So I just want her in the paper. Well, you know, you can do these things magically with the technology that was available even back then. But to make sure that we didn't have a slip up, I took a big crayon and put a red X through the guy's face so that the person who did what we call the amber lift dropout wasn't going to put them both in the paper. So we put the engagement announcement in the paper and everything was fine. And I had told the person who brought the photo in, no, we can't return the photo to you because it's gonna end up getting lost in the processing. So about a week later, this person comes back in and she says, I need that photo back. And I said, well, we can't guarantee that because you know it very likely got lost in the processing. No, I need it back. That's my daughter and my son who died. And it's the only picture I have of my son who died. 
Oh my and of God. Course, there was a big red X through the guy's face that could never be removed. So that was the kind of stuff that you sometimes have to do in order to get to someplace else. Not fun. No. I wanted to ask you also, um, do you think that your writing has had an effect on who you are as a person? Like your experience with writing about wine and food, has it affected your relationship with wine and food? Well, on some levels, yes, it's, it's made, um, it's made me impatient. Uh, and I, I find that food writing, restaurant criticism is extremely technical. And because of that, um, people will say, oh, you, back when I was in Louisiana, you're so lucky you get to go to all the fancy restaurants and eat all these fancy dishes. And I would say, it's the hardest work I've ever done because yeah. I have to be so extremely mindful and so extremely technical. So um, I don't like it when I have to put that technical part of me on when I just want to go out and have a meal and have a good time. Yeah. And as far as the wine writing is concerned, um, I get annoyed at competitive wine tasting. Mm -hmm. Not not the competition for the winemakers, but at people who have to be competitive about having the newest and the best and the most high end wines all the time, and then having all kinds of esoteric comments to make about the wines. Right. My real guide as a wine writer and as a wine drinker, frankly, was the late Maynard Amarine, who was a professor of uh, viticulture and enology at the University of California at Davis, and he said. America will never be a wine drinking nation until you set a bottle on the table every night at dinner that's called wine. Yeah. And um, I think people get obsessed with what I call the titratable acidity syndrome. That is wanting to be able to detect the very subtle, minute differences and brag about them or being able to brag about the expensive wines that they can drink. Yeah. I went to a wedding of someone very big in Silicon Valley. I'll just say that's, that, that's it. All right. And walked out into the kitchen to get my husband a glass of water. And I saw members of the wedding party drinking one of the first growths, you know, those incredibly expensive Bordeaux wines out of the bottle because they could. Yeah. And it just soured me. Um, so, yeah, it has changed me as a person. You know, if you want to make me really happy, buy me a bottle of Old Vine Zinfandel from Amador County and I'll be happy as a clam. Um, I, but I do not need to have something that's really explicit. And if you want to feed me something that's really good, feed me something that's simple and unadorned that you know how to make well. Um, does that answer your question? Oh, yeah. No, yeah, thank you. I wanted to ask you, what food did you grow up with um, where you grew up in Washington? What kind of food did you have growing up there? Well, as you know, I come from an immigrant family on one mm. side and on the other side, I come from a pioneer farm family. So my mother was a terrible cook. She wasn't really interested in food at all. And I have very few fond memories of the foods that she cooked. But on my dad's side, oh my God, my aunts and my aunts were fabulous Norwegian bakers. Mm -hmm. and um, the, the, the tradition in the family is seven kinds of freshly baked cookies on Christmas Eve, and I, I can still do them. So 
there was a lot of really fine Scandinavian baking. Um, and of course, growing up in the Northwest, you eat a lot of fish. Yeah. You eat a, a, and salmon is the food of the gods. In fact, the three great foods of the gods are salmon, blackberry pie, and my grandmother's homemade bread. And otherwise, you know, forget about it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good to me. Yeah, but that, that's pretty much what I, what I, oh, you know, one funny story in the Northwest, of course, we have Dungeness crab here on the whole West Coast. Yeah. And um, I had a visitor come from Louisiana one time and I decided we were going to have a picnics and I thought, I'll get a crab. So I told him, well, I'll go down to the Pike Place Market and I'll get a crab and some French bread and a bottle of wine and that ought to be sufficient. And he said, a crab. And I said, oh no, yeah, he doesn't know. Yeah. (laughs) And he said, no, don't you think you need to get a couple dozen or two of us? (laughs) And I said, no, a crab. So um, I still have trouble getting used to the idea that you could sit down and eat a dozen crab at a sitting. I, I could, on the other hand, I could eat, you know, five dozen shrimp at a sitting, but a dozen crab just kind of overwhelms me because a Dungeness crab should be enough for any two people. Oh yeah. No, I remember I, uh, my, my stepmother is from Alaska and she would go out and get us some crabs and it wouldn't be a dozen. It would be like a couple. <laughs> it yeah. would feed us all. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Now, who are you, some of your favorite celebrity chefs that you like to read that you've liked to read over the years? Hmm. Well, you know, I did like to read Paul Prudhomme's uh, cookbooks. I, I, I really did. Um, and I think later in life, as his got worse, he began to see that his way of cooking was not the most healthy way. And he actually came up with a cookbook that was a, a healthier version of the fabulous dishes that he came out with. Um, I also, of course, um, have liked um, the divine Julia Child. Oh, yeah. And um, Diana Kennedy. Um, And then I can't give you specific names, but I did learn to cook from the Time Life Foods of the World cookbook series. Yeah, those are wonderful. And they're wonderful. In fact, today, just before we got online, I pulled my uh, Louisiana version, Creole and Acadiana, cookbook off the shelf just to take a look at it and remember some of the things that were so wonderful those books which came out in I think it was the 1970s let me look at the front of this book and see what the copyright is on it or maybe it won't even have it in here um of course the copy oh wait here's a copyright notice uh, 1971 yeah I got married in 1965 and I didn't know what I was doing in the kitchen at all I married an Italian and honest to God, I really thought that olive oil was the juice that came off a can of olives. I was that <laughs> bad at cook. Um, one time um, his mother made fabulous gnocchis. And so I decided I was gonna make gnocchis. And the gnocchis I made ended up looking like diseased brain tissue. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed. I put them on the plate and I, my husband came in and he sat down and he looked at him and he said, what, what is this? And I, I couldn't bring myself to tell him. So I took the cookbook and opened it up to the recipe for gnocchis. And he looked at it and he had never seen the word in print in his life. 
He just had eaten them his whole life. And so he looked at the word and he went, Ginachinas, what the hell are Ginachinas? <laughs> and then when I told him they were gnocchis, oh, it was just so awful. But I did not know what I was doing. But the Time Life cookbooks taught me step-by-step step how to make fabulous, fabulous food. And the illustrations were so beautiful. They made me want to embrace the various cultures. The other um, basic cookbook that was my Bible, still is, is Joy of Cooking. Yeah, it's a wonderful book. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. And then there are a couple of Scandinavian cookbooks that are very good. Um, there's the Great Scandinavian Cookbook and the Great Scandinavian Baking Book. Oh, and then James Beard on Bread. My oh, James yeah. Beard on Bread cookbook has the pages stuck together, if that gives you any indication. I have that one too. That's a gorgeous book. If you were to describe your perfect meal, what would it be? Oh, I think I already did. Oh yeah, the it crab. Would, it, it would be salmon that I've cooked. Oh yeah. The, they're prepared in the dishwasher. Yep, yep, yep. And it would be blackberry pie um, with um, made with Pacific Northwest blackberries. And uh, it's wonderful. Be a glass of over oak Chardonnay because I have decadent taste in wine. And um, what more could you, oh, maybe, oh, Creole tomatoes. Oh my God, Creole tomatoes, yes. Creole tomatoes with, with a uh, chiffonade of basil and um, salt and pepper and some really good olive oil. Mm, that sounds delicious. That sounds wonderful. I wanted to ask you a last question. Do you have any projects that you're working on writing-wise right now that you're gonna be doing soon? Well, um, <laughs> We're, we're going to segue into a weird area here, Dean. That's fine. Um, as you know, uh, pedophilia in the Catholic Church is one of the issues that has offended me deeply and affected my family profoundly. And I've been working on some textile art pieces that are a rogues gallery of the offenders. And right. my plan is that once I get them completed, I'm going to um, write at least a series of essays about the issue and about why I chose to make these sort of comical figures in fabric. Uh, so that would be, I guess, the next thing that I'm thinking of doing. Um, I also have another series of textile art pieces that are my Sheila and the Gig series, and I really would like to make a book about them. Oh, I've seen uh, those and they're, they're, they're gorgeous and glorious. I hope you do. Um, yeah, that would be, I would love to see that happen. That would be really great. Because that's a great series you've done. And I've seen a few of your new works and they're just, just magnificent. So I hope that comes. Oh, to they're pass. not magnificent. They're silly because those were silly, awful people. But yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, your work. I mean, yeah, they're horrible people, but you're doing great work with this. It's good stuff. I'm really impressed by it. Well, Victoria, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk with you about this. This has really been wonderful. Well, it's been fun.